I think you really can't discuss mobility as a service without talking about multimodal integration and what automation is going to look like with driverless vehicles because they go hand in hand. Hello, my name is Matthias Finger. I'm the director of the transport area of the Florence School of Regulation at the European University Institute in Florence, Italy. Uh, I have the pleasure today um, to have a discussion with Matthew Daus. He was the former commissioner of the Taxi and Limousine Commission in New York City between 2001 and 2010. Uh, then uh, he became a transport technology chair at the transportation center of the City College of New York, uh, a position he still occupies today. And uh, he also works as a transportation lawyer um, specialized in all these new modes of transport. So. Uh, Matt, uh, thanks for being with us. Um, I look forward to a very interesting uh, discussion. Uh, you have observed, of course, how this whole taxi industry, urban, urban taxi industry has been transformed over the past 20 years. Um, how would you say, what are the main transformations that have taken place? Well, uh, first of all, it's great to, uh, to have this discussion, Matthias. You know, it's been great working with you and Igloos and your center over the years and um, for the benefit of students and uh, academics and, and the public. Um, and, um, you know, one, one other hat that I wear, which is relevant to the history of uh, ride hailing in the U.S. and beyond is the, I've been president of the International Association of Transportation Regulators as well since I left. And that title, you know, comes with uh, working on best practices with regulators. Um, and when the smartphone um, era started, we were very, very involved in trying to make sense out of the regulations keeping up with the changes in technology. Um, from a global standpoint, you know, just like any other technology, um, you know, I was just, uh, I was talking, um, you know, with my son the other day, looking at some old videos um, from a documentary from the 80s. And you could see that the video quality was so horrible on TV, you know, not that long ago. Um, and things in technology don't change for a very, very long time. And then all of a sudden, like lightning speed, everything just happens at once. And the advances in technology and in human history in general have, have been that way in the taxi industry really is no exception. Nothing had changed in the taxi industry for decades and decades and decades when it comes to technology. You know, the meters themselves, they even didn't get that much better over the years when you had the physical taxi meters that record the fares. Uh, and then literally, um, you know, when 2011 or 2012 rolled around um, and uh, some of the ride hailing apps started coming out, things just changed overnight. And the history of regulation um, in this industry has been who's been here first and who's coming next and how do we protect what we have? If you look around the country and the world, regulations before technology even came around for limousines was basically let's make regs and laws that say 
limousines will do something that's different than what taxis already do. You know, so if you look at the history of regulation, it's lobbyists coming in and saying, hey, we represent the taxi industry. We pick up people on the street. Uh, we also take pre prearranged calls. And uh, a great example of this is there's about 10 or 15 states in the US that actually put minimum um, fares for limousines um, and minimum wait times for limousines, which is not great customer service, but it was done on purpose by both competing organizations and groups so they could carve out turf or territory for themselves. Now that doesn't make sense. So it all came crashing down very quickly because it was anti-consumer. You know, the businesses are more concerned about protecting uh, their modes of transportation. But when people started using smartphones and the technology arrived quickly, um, the distinctions between pre-arranged or uh, pre-reserved um, um, vehicles service for passengers and on-demand completely became a hybrid. Um, really what Uber and other companies did is they took uh, the prearrangement and the on-demand and they merged it together so that you could more quickly get a vehicle and you didn't have to put your hand out in the street and wait endlessly or to have to call a phone number and speak to a dispatcher. So the main thing that technology did here is it forced the regulations to come together and it didn't happen very easily. The IATR, you know, we had all of our members, our taxi commissioners and limo commissioners all, all over the world had rules that they were enforcing that said limos do this, liveries do this, taxis do this, and, and what is Uber, right? Um, and we struggled with that. We came out with model regulations that, that said, look, you can do two things, Uber. You could either get a license to be a limo or a taxi company, or you can enter into a contract with one of the existing companies. Well, they didn't like that very much. So um, eventually what they did is they changed the regulatory paradigm in the US by going above the local regulators because most of the regulation is local in the United States. So they went to the state level, which preempts and supersedes the local regulations. And they created a law that was somewhat uniform that had less uh, regulation than the local model for taxis. So uh, they created this term, which I'm sure you all know, the TNCs, transportation network companies. And that was based, eventually passed through their efforts and Lyft's efforts uh, working together uh, as two similar business models in, in, in pretty much all of the United States. Um, and uh, that has changed things dramatically. It's very, there are things that make it easier to get that license and to operate. And there are things that are more difficult when you get that license, like the high licensing fees that you have to pay that small companies can't afford. And the fact that these regulations specifically excluded taxis and limousines and, and forced them to, to be beholden to the former regulations that were you know, preventing them from competing. So that evolved very, very quickly. Um, and then now we're talking about mobility as a service and automation, and that's the next big revolution uh, that's going to happen. And the, the ride-hailing companies are in the middle of that. And I think, Matthias, one of the big issues there is, you know, what's going to be the next stage of disruption? And I'm sure we're going to talk more about that. But um, really, the, the technology forced the regulations to change, but it was really the companies that pushed the change.
it wasn't the regulators. The regulators' idea was to try to, like they always did, was to fit them into categories that we've always looked at, you know, um, and, and they said, well, that's not what we are. We're going to define what the regulations are and are based upon our business model, which the consumers want. So that was the big philosophical difference in regulation. And it's still a bit of a mess because, you know, we still have all these local taxi and limo regulations um, that, you know, so, you know, in the U.S. that still apply. So there's no uniformity. You know, so it's really not, it's really still not good. I mean, there needs to be a complete reboot of what it means to be regulated, focusing, of course, on, you know, the safety element. That's the most important thing. It's customer service. Uh, when, I, when, when people ask me, Matthias, what, what should regulation do for full higher ground transportation? I don't care whether it's a taxi, a limo, a, a ride hailing company, a shuttle, a bus. It's all the same. Number one, the, the government should have an interest in making sure that customers do not get ripped off and they're protected, that they're not overcharged, that they're not charged excessive fees. Number two, they there needs to be safe service. The drivers need to be good drivers, safe drivers. They're not going to commit um, you know, criminal acts uh, against passengers and others. Uh, and number three, the latest thing, which was never really something that we talked about in the field of regulation of transport, but now has become an issue, is the drivers. You know, that, that the labor issue is always a separate set of laws and the independent contractor model where the drivers are supposed to be their own business people and they're just simply working through, um, you know, a, a network or, a, 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 you know, software as a service platform modality. We all know that that's not the truth, that these people are almost uh, controlled in many ways and this big debate legally on whether they should have health benefits and they should have overtime and they should be treated like employees is something which transportation regulators never dealt with. Uh, but in, in the mid nineties with the taxi rate affair, many cities started capping the amount that you could lease a cab for if you're a driver. And recently, and because all my predictions kind of came true on this, if you remember Matthias, years ago, we started doing lectures with the students. I was predicting that this unlimited growth of the ride hails is gonna to lead to congestion and a supply and demand crunch that's going to hurt the drivers and they're gonna be making less money. The same reason why we created the medallion system uh, after the Great Depression when we had too many cabs and not enough work. And it's exactly what happened. And I, I always knew that all of the politicians who were pushing the concept of ride handling would then rethink things because from an equity and a congestion mitigation standpoint, the transportation policymakers would be very upset that all their efforts to get rid of the car and to get people to use different forms of transit would come crashing down. And that's exactly what happened. And unfortunately, there were 10 suicides in New York City by drivers who couldn't make ends meet anymore because they couldn't make a living. And all these different cities now um, and states are looking at making sure that drivers have uh, labor protections. New York City and Seattle passed minimum wage laws and transportation regulators never did that before. And California passed a law known as AB5, which forces uh, everyone, including taxi and uh, ride hailing companies to treat their drivers like employees. Uh, Uber and Lyft lobbied for something known as Prop 22, which was a referendum that undid that recently. And every, a lot of states are looking at doing this too. But even if you look at what Uber and Lyft proposed, what passed, and what, which is now the law in California, still has minimum wage and, and other types of protections that the right-hailing companies agreed to.
So I think the labor enters into the equation. That's something we never dealt with before. And I think moving forward, Matias, that's going to definitely be something that's a consideration. The gig worker and uh, the gig economy and these part-time workers th that they need protections is something that's going to always be on the table, especially as we move into automation where that the, the, the mm -hmm. scope mm -hmm. and the purpose of having a driver is called into question. So, Matt, I mean, you you, you show the, the story, you know, the that the regulators were not prepared. Uh, the transport network companies took the lead and proposed their own definitions separately from, from, the, from the traditional taxi regulation. But now regulation is catching up or is it still lagging behind? Well, no, it's definitely still lagging behind. I think, um, you know, the one thing that it's good that you bring up that point because it wasn't just the regulators not being ready for it. The industry was not only not ready for it, they were in denial. The, the incumbent taxi and limousine industry, they thought that they would solve this problem um, on, you know, as they solve every other problem. You know, they were very uh, politically involved and active in their cities. Um, one company in San Francisco, when Uber and Lyft first appeared, said, don't worry to the trade group leaders, this is a local problem, we'll fix it. We're gonna to talk to the mayor. I mean, you know, what they didn't realize is that the mayors were being lobbied by their constituents. The passengers wanted it, you know, and, and they looked like they were anti-technology or as they would say in London, Luddites um, that were, you know, resisting change. And there was a whole, generation of millennials that wanted this and kind of looked at the taxi industry as a cartel or a, an industry that was resisting change to put money in their pockets. Now, it couldn't be further from the truth. These are small business owners that really just, you know, are not are not what you think they are. You could say that the bigger companies are the ones that were the bullies here, but they didn't do what they could have done soon enough. What they should have done is gotten together early on and said, look, let's let's get with the times. Let's get our own smartphone app for the entire industry. You know, I think in Europe, you know, Taxi EU and some of the folks there really were a little bit ahead of us on this. On this, they were trying to get everybody on the same platform and the same app. It took almost seven years for the the industry groups to get together and do this. And by then, it was too late. They needed to do this immediately. And because the problem is, is that the the there were so many apps that came out at one time that when you go to a trade show for the taxi industry, every app had a booth and they were all looking to get exclusive deals with different companies. And there was, you know, division within the ranks of the taxi industry. You know, they weren't united. And that really was their downfall because, you know, the regulations are still in place um, and they basically have been decimated. The industry is dying. The only work that taxis have in most cities are uh, with the exception of New York, which I think has a different model, are airport work and uh, wheelchair accessible non-emergency medical transportation. That's something that Uber and Lyft didn't do initially. So they they were picking up a lot of that business. And what's really interesting now is um, since Uber and Lyft drivers don't have many wheelchair accessible vehicles in the taxi industry has most of them, um, I could see where this whole thing gets reversed, where the taxi industry in some cities may be saved by working with Uber and Lyft potentially, you know, where they're trying to get into the healthcare business and 
um, and, and provide medical transportation and taxis are already doing it. Um, and they might actually integrate their apps with the taxis. So I think that's the hope that they have, but regulation has absolutely nothing to do with it. I think the regulations have been stagnant for the last few years. Nobody's looking to make a change with the exception of the labor issues I spoke about. You know, the basic items of getting a license and what type of license, it's become more complicated, more disjointed, uh, and more confusing. And half my time is spent, you know, uh, as a lawyer explaining to companies uh, how, they, how they navigate some of these ridiculous regulations that are all over the place. Mm -hmm. And now, you know, you have, obviously, you come from the U.S. experience, but now you also have your international role. If you compare with, with what's going on in Europe or maybe other parts of the world, Asia, how, how would you, you know, assess the advancement of the regulation in Europe as compared to uh, the U.S., for example? Well, that's a good question. And um, I actually think that Europe and Asia and other countries are well ahead of us in many different ways. Um, in fact, if you look at what we did in New York City with the bike lanes um, and, and the bike sharing infrastructure around the country in the US, we all took those ideas from uh, South America and from the European Union. You know, we looked at countries like France and cities like Paris and Amsterdam. Uh, and we, we kind of co copied the concept and brought it here. So Europe is advanced uh, in that respect. And they're also on mobility as a service, they're advanced. And on the governance side, other countries are well more advanced. This is a governance issue. Who's in charge? We have you know several different agencies in California and other parts of the United States that are regulating the same, the same thing, basically taking a passenger somewhere. There's too many different silos of Uh, government regulation, some state, some local, um, and they don't talk to each other and they don't govern uh, under the same roof. London's TfL, Singapore, um, the, the Land Transport Authority, uh, in United Arab Emirates, um, whether you agree or disagree with their, um, with their political system, um, thing, more things get done. Um, and it's simply because if you look at Singapore as a model, They have, they're dealing with everything at the same time. They're dealing with multimodal approaches to, to governing transportation. They're looking at taxis at the, in the, at the same breath that they're looking at mobility as a service and automation. And these agencies can do that because there's, there's uniform leadership. We don't have that in the US and that needs to change. Um, but you know, some of the things that have been done in other countries, especially Europe are ahead of us, not just on micromobility, But um, you know the resistance that took place in Europe, um, we could not accomplish in the U.S. Um, the regulators and the industry stood their ground, and actually forced the ride-hailing companies to come to them. So um, you know because of uh, the regulators being um, uh, having more power and principle to resist changing the regulations as the ride-hail companies wanted them to. They were forced to comply with the existing paradigm. Whether that's a good or a bad thing, I don't know. But certainly, um, you know, they're looking to uh, work with within the system. You know, um, you know, Uber was following the lead of Grab, I believe, a while back in dealing with the taxi industry, and now Uber actually bought AutoCab in the UK. In the UK, and they're looking to do business, um, you know, with the taxi industry. You know, it's funny because in the U.S., the famous saying, if you can't beat them, join them. Uh, many of the taxi people were saying that, but you couldn't join them because it's impossible 
to get the same licenses that Uber and Lyft have. You know, not, you can't do it. But the other way around, I think Uber is saying, you know, in the European Union, if you can't beat the taxis and the regulators, let's join them. And that's exactly what they're doing. And uh, with all the mergers and acquisitions that have gone on, this this concept of Move EU, the framework for ride hailing, it's kind of similar to what happened in the U.S., like where all the companies got together, the Uber and Lyft and some others, to create the transportation network company laws. In the EU, there's now a discussion of a framework where Uber, Bolt, and Free Now are coming together to propose um, a regulatory paradigm to the European Union. And the European Union has indicated that uh, they are open um, to looking at a new paradigm, but they seem to have made statements that they um, are concerned about the labor issues primarily. But nothing has happened yet, but I do believe that there's a chance that whatever framework emerges will be more inclusive, um, I'm hoping, in, in the EU. So actually, yeah, we can learn more and we have learned more um, from the governance structures um, as well as um, you know the approach to regulation from the EU and other parts of the world. And frankly, it's better. Uh, the, the model in Singapore and London, uh, you know, believe me, governance is a big part of the issue. When you have too many different politicians and silos of authority in a democracy, it becomes very, very difficult to, to good, make good transportation policy for everyone. Last question. Can you look 10 years from now? How, do, how does this, this mobility as a service uh, a platform, digital transport look like? Yeah, um, I can look five, 10 years. I think, Matthias, the issue here is what's, go what's the government going to do? I mean, you know, the, no matter what you do with technology, um, well, you know, they, the government controls the streets. They control the modus operandi of transport, um, especially if the future involves multimodal connections with public transit, which it must. Mobility as a service, as a concept, as you know, um, you know, whether you're talking about, um, you know, when. Um, you know, with some of the projects that are already going on in, in Europe and elsewhere, um, the, the future, because of the automated vehicle movement, will need to involve the government. And nobody wants to talk about this. Everyone's talking about how the technology is advancing, but nobody's talking about the business model, right? You know, you can't, I don't think the same thing that happened with ride handling is going to happen with automation, okay? An auto manufacturer is not going to put a driverless car on the road without getting approval from the authorities. It's a, it was a lot easier to say, hey, we can just pick up without a, t a taxi license. You know, it's a lot easier to do that than it is to, you know, mess around with a car that could, you know, cause serious injury to people without a driver. So the liabilities that are there for the manufacturers, they're not going to fool around. They're not going to do anything without government approval, whether it's testing a full imp implementation. The problem that we have is that there's not a, a framework. You know, what, how is automation going to work? And I, I have to bring this up because anything that's done with mobility as a service involving all these modes involves number one, a software platform. Who's going to control the data and who's going to control that platform for making the connections? And number two, um, you know, who's going to control the streets and where these vehicles go? And how does that translate into automation? So I, I, I think you really can't discuss mobility as a service without talking about multimodal integration and what automation is gonna look like with driverless vehicles because they go hand in hand. 
governments need to be thinking about how we go from putting mobility as a service apps together, who's going to run or be in charge of that, and what the business model is going to be for automation. For instance, is the government going to say, uh, we're going to hire a contractor who's going to manage all of the vehicles on the street and, and all the bikes and all the e-scooters under, under one app that passengers could use both public and private? Or is there going to be a free-for-all where they say people can do what they want and companies can operate and market and make their own private partnerships. So the third model um, potentially is um, what um, maybe maybe the government should just buy automated vehicles and get rid of private transportation and um, make them just like a public bus. You'll have a public ride-hailing vehicle that doesn't have a driver um, and it, it operates as mobility as a service, right? You'll, you'll have everything under one government roof. We don't know what that business model is going to look like. It probably will end up being a hybrid, something in between. But the manufacturers and, uh, and the ride-hailing companies and the software companies are all uh, playing a game of, 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 of uh, chicken with each other, or they're, um, they're all spying on each other and wondering what the next move is going to be. Because if I was a ride-hailing CEO, I would be very concerned that um, as, as the future develops, that the mobility as a service model would be automakers dealing directly with driverless cars with the government in one way or the other. And then, oh, by the way, we're gonna do an app. So bye-bye Uber, bye free now, we don't need you anymore, right? So, so um, doing an app you know, is not that complicated to do. You know, the big question is what is the future of the ride hailing companies if mobility as a service couples with automation and the government takes it over, because you really can't have the government not be involved in this. What happens on the streets and how you connect to mass transit must involve the government. So the future really is in the government, government, government's hands. Yes, the private industry and the technology will help direct them where they go, but they need to make some decisions. Um, and who controls the platforms, the data uh, that connects all these things? Um, where the ride hill companies and the automakers make out with each other. That's why you see, number one, ride hailing companies uh, either buying out taxi platforms or doing partnerships or buying ride hailing companies. I mean, ride uh, bike sharing companies, right? They're looking to pave the way for a deal where they can control more so that they can exist in the future because the app is going to become an afterthought potentially on these smartphones. And, and, the, and the real power lies in what is going to happen with the government, the software, and the vehicle itself. That's where the control is. So I see this as a fight between the automakers and the ride-hill companies. And the ride-hill companies have leverage by getting uh, these other modes under their roof, and they have software that they're developing. And there's going to be deals that are created. If you look at every automaker, Matthias, every automaker either has a partnership with the ride-hill app or they're doing stuff on their own. This is not by mistake, it's by design. They're all posturing to make sure that they survive. Um, and, and this is gonna be very interesting how it plays out, but really who's holding all the cards in this, in, this, in this poker hand? It is the government. And the government needs to provide leadership and it's unavoidable. And I'm hoping that you know, the EU and the US um, you know, and other parts of the world will uh, be able to figure this out and come up with, and we're trying to do this at ITR. We're working on model regulations for implementation of automation, which includes 
mobility as a service. And we're going to try to at least propose a menu of options for government regulators so they can feed and, and learn from the mistakes of the ride hailing movement where they were in the back seat and, and, and the industry was leading. They need to be in the lead. I, I think you, you compellingly show us that the government is not out. Actually, it is a partner in this in this new shaping of, of the, the urban mobility world. So I, I, I very much agree with, with your analysis and Europe is quite well placed in that kind of approach. And you know, the, Europe is ahead, Matthias, as you know, with uh, the GDPR and, um, you know, we don't have the data and privacy framework that you have. Um, and, you know, and when it comes to the issues of accessibility and equity, um, Europe, we're catching up now but I mean, Europe has always been ahead on those fronts. Uh, I mean, look, the resistance to the right hill companies were concerns by the government that labor was being mistreated um, and that, you know, people were taking advantage of a double Dutch taxation strategy, you know, um, you know, but by uh, forming companies in the Netherlands with offshore accounts. There's always been a concern of, of making sure that there's an, any type of monopolies are avoided or any a type of big market influences avoided and the competition commission and all the stuff that happens in the EU, um, I think has actually led to more sound regulation and approaches than, than the US. And I think we have a lot to learn from the EU. Um, you know, so I, I think, you know, th this more collaboration between the countries uh, is important. In fact, I mean, one thing I never mentioned, Matthias, is uh, I was honored to be one of five people chosen by the United States Department of Transportation and the Transportation Research Board to represent the US in a collaboration that we did in Brussels a few years ago, um, where we got all the leaders from Europe and, um, and the US together to, to brainstorm about what the future of automation and connected vehicles is in light of socioeconomic concerns. And nobody was talking about it. And there's a great report that was issued by uh, the European Commission um, and the Transportation Research Board that I, I worked on some sections of it that was spearheaded by um, uh, you know, both governments, which I think puts together a framework of what the issues are um, to make sure that the automation and the technology improvements, whether it's mobility as a service, ride hailing or connected vehicles doesn't get ahead of people who are, are less able to take transportation, who live in transportation deserts, who are being left behind, and people who are, uh, you know, have, uh, you know, need accessible service. Like these things can't be left behind by the technology. And that's one example of a recent collaboration which needs to continue between our countries. Great analysis, Matt. Um, I think this was really, really very helpful um, in helping us understand, you know, the evolution, the challenges, and, uh, you know, uh, also what you are saying about the the, the role of Europe in, in shaping this, um, this mobility world into the future. So thank you very much for your insights and for your, yeah, your, great, um, your, your great analysis of, of the situation. And I hope we will, we will continue our conversation in another, um, in another context and maybe we can follow up on this. So thanks again, Matt. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Matthias.